The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome to episode 25 of The Wizard Files, the special interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. This time around, we're talking to a bullpen mainstay who started out as a copy editor but soon was inescapable within the pages of The Guide to Comics as Managing Editor and Twisted Sisters' number one fan. We're excited to welcome to the show Andrew Carden. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much. Uh, awesome intro, and I'm sure Dee would appreciate it. <laughs> and speaking of which, you know, first question, who are you? Where do you come from? Are you listening to me? What do you want to do with your life? There's only one answer. I would say I want to rock, but uh, it's probably I want a comic. <laughs> Yeah, so we're not going to bury the lead here, Andrew. You have to start off by telling us about the time Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister called up to ask for a tour of the wizard offices in Congress, New York. How did this go down? It's not that long a story, so um, but it is definitely one of the things I am most proud of right behind my marriage and my kids, I would say, in my life. It starts with me being a huge Twisted Sister fan. My whole life, I, I can't tell you how many times I listened to Stay Hungry and You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, two of the bigger albums, while I mowed so many lawns back in the 80s. So I was a big, big fan. And then when I started at Wizard, we played music all the time, and I was blasting, you know, Twisted Sister. I was always, if you're familiar with them, you know the little uh, symbol, the TS little icon or yeah. logo. So we had whiteboards all over the office, a different one. So I was constantly putting them in the corners of everybody's office. <laughs> As you had done on many notebooks over the years, I'm exactly. sure. Exactly. So it was no secret that I was a big Twisted Sister fan. So that went on for a while. And then constantly it would get thrown in the magazine. As you know, we start building up different personas, whether it was in the, the Wizard Bullpen, a little interview with me, or I still remember the best one, and I think this is what did it. You're going to know the issue number. I won't. I want to say 45. It was, I think, an April Fool's issue, and I had, like, uh, one of the, on the top 10, instead of top 10 comics, we did top 10 Twisted Sister songs. <laughs> that was in there, and a bunch of other things. So that's been set, and it was kind of put in there, so it's pretty obvious if you're reading the magazine, like, who's a Twisted Sister fan? Kind of tell it was me. So I'm sitting at my desk one day and the phone rings and this happened all the time. We had this back in the day when there were actually phones people used at their desk in an office. So we all had our phones. We had a receptionist that would constantly be sending people through. And I talked to a lot of different comic writers and artists all the time as part of the job. So it was not weird for someone to say, oh, there's you know Tom McFarlane on the line or whoever for you. That was fairly commonplace. Now, I had a friend, my college friend, Dave, who loved playing jokes on me. And every time he would call me to the office, he would pick a different name, you know, whether it was Jack Kirby or Stan Lee or something like that. And this one day I get the receptionist who goes, Andrew, I've got a D Snyder for you on the line. And the first thought I have is, oh, good one, Dave. So I pick up the phone and I go, hi, D. Like an <laughs> and he's like, yo, Andrew, how you doing? 
what's going on there? And typical Dee Snyder screaming at you. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty good, Dave. He's like, no, it's really me. It's really Dee. And it took a second, and then it clicked. And I was like, oh, my God, this is Dee Snyder. So the first thing I did, and I was proud of myself for this, being a good, I guess, reporter, uh, I asked him if he'd mind if I take this. <laughs> so he said no. <laughs> So I threw my recorder on and then we started talking and it was probably a 45 minute conversation and it was fantastic. It was amazing. And it turns out D, if you know, he's a comic book fan. He always kind of liked him on and off like superheroes. He had at the time two sons and his older son, Jesse, was a huge comic book fan and a huge wizard fan, was always reading this stuff. And I guess he showed his dad that one issue, the April Fool's one, and said, look, dad, here's all these Twisted Sister songs. And he went back and found, I guess it was my profile in the wizard bullpen that had a picture of me with D or something like that. And he's like, I think this is the guy who loves you, you know, Twisted Sister and all that. So because of D Snyder's son looking at that, D said, all right, let me give him a call and see if they'll give us a tour. And that was all it took. And so after I hung up the phone, immediately ran into editor-in-chief Pat McCallum in Brian Cunningham's office, explained it to them. They didn't believe me. I had to take out the tape to prove it, which is also why I did the record. And from there, it just led to everyone was amazed. They loved it. Uh, we set up a time for him to come to the office. It's not something we normally did for tours, but uh, who's going to say no? And Dee Snyder showed up at the office. And I had the pleasure of not only walking him around, showing him off to everybody, and I think the warehouse guys were the most excited when we went back there. But I got to take him out to lunch on Wizard's Dime. Wow. I still remember uh, a bunch of us went, like 10 of us went from the, you know, the magazine team, the core editorial design team. And he's like, no, you're coming with me. So I got to go and he was driving his wife Suzette's Jeep. If you can picture this, a hot pink Jeep with no top or anything. <laughs> He's in the front. I'm sitting next to him and his two kids are right behind us and we're cruising down, you know, the local streets to a, a Bennigan's to go for lunch. And, and that was it. It was probably the most surreal and awesome day of my life. <laughs> that is fantastic. Wow. I can only imagine because I'm known among my friend group and basically your family, everybody they're like, oh, Adam is the Kiss guy. So right. I, I've, I've just been fanatical about Kiss forever. So they're like, if, if I ever ran into Gene Simmons or Paul Stanley, you know, it'd be that sort of thing. Like, well, huh? He was a great guy. I did follow up a number of times. I, you know, I emailed him. I called him every once in a while, did some interviews. I actually got friendlier with his son, Jesse, who got into comics. He's actually written some comics and, uh, he's still doing a lot of that kind of stuff. And he, he does everything, musician, voiceovers and writing comics. He goes to a lot of conventions. So I definitely have stayed in touch with him. And, you know, it's every couple of years, probably I reach out. Well, that begs the question, you know, Kiss had a comic book. Alice Cooper's had a comic book. Lita Ford and Ozzy Osbourne, did Twisted Sister ever get a comic book, even an unauthorized biography for rock and roll comics? That's a great question that I wish I had the answer and I'm embarrassed I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to guess yes, that I remember there was a rock and roll comic. I don't remember who put it out, some independent, and Guns N' Roses was the first one. Yeah. If you remember, um, they did like 20 or 30 issues. So exactly. a chance Twisted Sister was in there. We're going to have to track that one down. If anybody knows. I'm going to call up Jesse, if not, see if the two of us can write, a, write an issue. It's time. The time has come. <laughs> <laughs> but but let's go back to the beginning then, Andrew. You know, when you were just a, a little snot-nosed metalhead, how did comic books enter your life? I was into comics, really into them, since about the third or fourth grade. And 
really got into them, I think, mainly because of uh, my friends growing up. I had a friend, Gary, around the corner who had two older brothers that were, I guess, into comics. And he was really into comics. So it kind of got me going a little bit. And I remember it might have been him, either Gary or his brother was long ago used to sell like magazine subscriptions and they used to sell comic book subscriptions. This is going way back. Very different from today. They would literally go door to door to sell comic subscriptions. And I was like, I have to get something. And I remember looking at the list. And at that time, there were maybe eight comic titles from Marvel. It was really a small list. And I picked Star Wars for some reason, because I was really into Star Wars. And Marvel Comics' run of Star Wars, it was issue number 31. I still have it. It's beat up a bit. And it was not a good issue by any means, but I still have it. <laughs> and from there, it kept going. And I got into Captain America next as a as next superhero and started getting subscriptions that way. And used to keep getting them in the mail. And then from there, it kind of just took off. You know, we talk about it all the time with my friends. And I remember I had a big collection, which was a whole whopping, I think, 50 issues that I had. And I was so proud to show my, my aunt and uncle when they came over and, and things like that. And it just snowballed from there. I mean, I just I fell in love with them right away. I remember Spider-Man and his amazing friends was, was and still is one of my favorite cartoons ever. And that kind of thing and all the, the super friends, everything just really hit home with me for some reason. And my friend, having two friends that are really into it that live in your neighborhood, it really makes it pretty easy. Yeah, absolutely. When you have uh, friends who are feeding the hunger there. I'll actually mention, you know, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. I'm going to a uh, RetroCon at the end of September. And as part of that, the voice actor who played Peter Parker, you know, and Spider-Man on, on that show is going to be there. So got to go get that signature on one of my VHS tapes, you know. Where is RetroCon? RetroCon is in Pennsylvania. It's just just outside Philadelphia, and oh. uh, yeah, it's it's a really great convention. They have they have a lot of good stuff there. So I might meet you there, Adam. <laughs> hey, let's do it, man. Yeah, definitely look it up. RetroCon is is an event. Now let's talk about this then. So yeah, so obviously you're reading comics. You love your comics. I'm assuming your collection is growing past fifty over the years. So what events then led you to applying for a job at Wizard Magazine? What was that hiring process like? Well, not only was I reading them, but I guess I was selling them. Uh, one of my uh, my friend, as I said, my friend Gary's older brother actually worked at a comic book store at one point. Oh. So he got to that point, and he was going to co conventions at the time, way before Wizards Con. I think San Diego Comic Con was probably the only big one. And then there were a lot in Manhattan that were at the Marriott, I think. Marriott Marquis, whatever it was called before the Marquis in Midtown. They always had these huge conventions on the 38th floor, whatever it was. And I remember, actually, I must have had five or six long boxes at the time. So a few thousand maybe comics. And I was really into the speculating and buying up multiple, multiple issues. When the Ghost Rider came out, I remember number one, I bought tons of them at dollar fifty a pop, whatever they were, and selling them for 15, 20 bucks each. And it was right around when Death in the Family came out and when Robin died. Sorry for the spoiler. But um, that, for some reason, that series went for a few hundred dollars for four issues. Whoa. And that kind of stuff I was buying up, you know, early on when it was coming out. So I went with my friends and we chipped in and we bought a table and we would sell stuff at the show. So, you know, all along I've been really into it, reading it, collecting it and even selling it. So definitely was a big, big part of my life. When I got into college, I went for, I guess the closest thing would be a journalism degree to be a, you know, a writer, a reporter. Um, I worked on the school newspaper, all that kind of stuff. And again, comics weren't huge then. It wasn't like today. So... It certainly wasn't, I didn't mind because I, I have no shame, but I, was, but I was going around and it wasn't like everyone's talking about comics. They're like, you like comic books or why do you have Captain America doll on your desk? And, things like <laughs> um, and I didn't care. So 
I do remember getting into Wizard then. Not even close to as fanatical as you guys are. But I was definitely into it and thought it was kind of cool. And I really got into it, sadly, like most people probably did for the price guide originally, just to try and value what my, my comics were. And I don't remember what it was, but it was my junior year. And I was with my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. And she was looking in there and I was just thinking about what to do for the summer, summer job. And she's like, somehow she looked in a wizard. She was just flipping through it. And she noticed that they were located in Congers, New York. And I grew up very close to there. It was literally about 15 minutes away. Oh. Like, why don't you try to get a job here? You know, it's, it's a magazine about comic books. And they're like right next door. And I'm like, no, no, I could never do that. And she's like, why not? Give it a shot. So I literally wrote a letter to a few people on the masthead just saying exactly what I kind of told you. I'm a big comic book fan. I'm going to school for journalism. I'd love to be an intern, that kind of thing. And shockingly, I got a response because I don't think they had any interns before that at Wizard, or they might have had one or two. It was not a program. So I think, you know, free labor, they're going to jump at at that early stage. And I honestly don't even remember the interview. I must have had an interview. But I think it went really well because they hired me, and I went to work for the summer at Wizard back in, I'm trying to remember, I think issue 23 or 24 was coming out when I started. It was a really small staff at the time. It was about five or six people on editorial and design total. And my job was nothing to do with Wizard at the time. I had the pleasure of working on another project of Garib's, which was a magazine called Collector's Sports Look. Yes. Which Garib, you know, Garib started this magazine all about comic books and apparently likes comics. But I think baseball cars were his his heart and soul, what he really wanted. He always wanted a baseball card magazine. So that's what that was going to be. So I definitely remember what I did was the most boring thing in the world. Somehow I remember looking through a number of different price guides for baseball cards and somehow compiling all the different prices, averaging them and all that to come up with a list of prices for cards. And I had to scan them in. And I remember working with designer Arlene So had just started also. So the two of us were working closely on scanning this stuff in and using OCR to try and figure out, you know, what the numbers are really saying and putting a, a thing together that way. So that was the bulk of my job when I first started as an intern. Thankfully, it grew from there, and I took on basically any job they needed. I did some stuff for Wizard, compiling it, but I was really, whatever Garib needed, I was helping him out. That's awesome. Yeah, Arlene definitely mentioned that when we were talking to her. She was, <laughs> I was like, wow, yeah, that's that's intense. <laughs> now, just for those who don't know, because most people listening probably are not super familiar with Collector's Sports Luck, but who were some of the familiar faces over there that eventually ended up at Wizard? The biggest one probably would be Jim McLaughlin. He was high on there. Steve Blackwell. Became a major designer, uh, head of design, I guess. Scott Gramling, I don't know if that name is familiar to you. He worked a lot on the, he did some stuff in the Wizard Magazine, but did the specials, I believe, for a while. Oh, yeah, that he came back for the later years as head honcho. So. Yeah, there you go. And I think Brad Fountain was also on there. He's also a designer, um, and then he switched over to Wizard. Yeah, because your transition then, you know, you first, at least according to our records, appear in the Wizard Masthead as a copy editor in issue number 39. And then by issue 41, you already have a full feature article interviewing the painters of the X-Men Fleer Ultra 95 trading card set. So what was that evolution, the transition over to Wizard? It sounds like you were kind of doing odd jobs here and there, but was there a moment where it was, okay, here I am as an official member of the Wizard wizard bullpen and what do you remember about the rest of those early assignments or even your goals uh, working at the magazine there definitely was an official transition i said i was an intern and i went back to school and 
this, I probably still have it. If I find it, I will take a picture and send it to you. Awesome. I remember when I finished my internship and went back to school, and I did come during the winter when you have a winter break. I, they also wanted me to come back, so I did. But I remember Garib calling me into his office on my last day, which, you know, is a whatever I am, 19, 20-year-old kid and the, the head of this whole company. I'm like, oh, God, what does he want? Um, so I went in, and he just thanked me. It was really sweet. He thanked me. He actually gave me an envelope that I don't even remember. It must have had a bonus in it, some money. I don't know how much. And a letter, a handwritten letter from Garib that really was – Really short and sweet, thanking me for my time and ending it by saying, go back to school, you know, finish your degree, do what you got to do, and just know that if you want it, you absolutely have a job waiting for you when you graduate. And I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. So went back. Senior year was the greatest because I knew I had a job, so it didn't really matter. And right after I graduated, you know, I stayed in touch with them and I started, I guess, in June, June or July of 94. So when I started and for a very short period, I started in the marketing department for Wizard as a, as a company because Garrett thought I was in marketing. Which I, <laughs> honestly, that's what happened. And after a couple of weeks, I'm like, this is crazy. Uh, you know, I'm happy to be here. This is not what I'm trained for. And thankfully, there was an opening and there were internal ads and up on the bullet board kind of ads for a copy editor for Wizard Magazine. So I grabbed my portfolio. I remember, I think what helped me out was in college when I was writing for the newspaper, they had the WWF at the time was playing or, you know, there was an event locally at the arena. So I went and I got to go kind of backstage and interview them. And I did a really cool, fun wrestling story. And Pat McCallum is a gigantic wrestling fan. Right. Yeah. I think that certainly helped catch his eye and got his approval and quickly, you know, got the job. I was ecstatic to start as a copy editor officially on the magazine. And issue 39, yes, is my first mention of the masthead. But issue 38 is technically my first issue because I started probably about halfway through and they just didn't get me on the masthead in time and just did a little bit of copy editing. And I believe I had to do a follow up on an article about Catwoman, which was being written by Joe Duffy at the time. And they wanted like one more little quote or something. So that was my very first phone call interview to a creator was calling Joe Duffy and asking her a few questions about Catwoman. Wow, that's awesome. And she's very cool, by the way, or seems to be. Yeah, so many people were. I mean, that was the best part of them, is just talking to the people. And I remember that Fleer ultra set. <laughs> Distinctly, I remember interviewing Dave DeVries, who is a fantastic painter and still is. And I'm friends with him on Facebook, I'll say, and he is a hysterical guy. And just still, he teaches and is really into art and design and all that. Oh, wow. It was, it was amazing, and he drew some really, really cool cards. I, I believe his picture in that article, because we're actually prepping to record that episode now, and I think he has basically a Gene Simmons-style makeup look. He's got, like, a bat, like, drawn on his face. That's him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been Tom Taggart was another one who does, like, sculptures, and he did a lot of DC work for covers, but I think he did some in here, too. Oh, cool. Now, uh... You know, as you look back, you know, that those are the early days. Is there a particular feature that you contributed to just throughout your tenure that you're most proud of or maybe the story behind it stands out in your mind? Absolutely. There's three that stick out in my mind. Um, one is one of my jobs is when I after a while at, at Wizard, you do a lot of writing and I moved up the ladder was managing editor, copy editor, I don't remember the, the flow. It was different kinds of editors all along. And you basically get in charge of different columns where you're, you know, the editor of that column, just meaning you've got to make sure the copy comes in on time and you've got to be in charge of assigning it ahead of time, editing it, all that kind of stuff. And 
the one I was in charge of that I loved and hated at the same time was basic training. And that was basically we would reach out to different artists out there and have them in four pages draw a bunch of images uh, and kind of explain how to draw something. And it's very high level. Obviously, you have to be an artist to know it, but it's still cool to hear the tips and tricks from the different people. And I love that column because it was great talking to the people. And I, the artwork is always gorgeous. It was just kind of fun. The, the hard part was lining up enough stuff in time because it takes a while for the artist to get everything going. So scrambling is what drove me crazy. But the one I am most proud of of that, it was my holy grail to get this one artist to do something for us, was nailing uh, George Perez to do a basic training on how to draw group shots Ooh. because he just is amazing at drawing 6,000 people in one panel. Right. Um, and he was the nicest guy you'll ever meet and did such a fabulous job. So that I was really proud of. Not the actual work because he wrote it, but just getting that one in there was great. Two other things. The one feature I think I'm most proud of was back when Batman The Long Halloween came out, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. And it was a really cool story that was a huge mystery. It's a murder mystery. Was it 12 issues maybe? And Holiday is the big villain and somebody's killing people left and right. Who is it? You can imagine The Sopranos with a mystery behind it. Yeah. It's the whole mafia thing. And I remember we did an article, it must have been about halfway through the series, where it was, I think that it was just called Who is Holiday or something like that. And we looked at all the evidence and we put stuff together. And I think we, in the end, we, we wrote a couple of things and then we threw mugshots up on a page of like the nine most obvious characters that are probably the suspects and then put odds on who it might be. And, and in the end came up with who it is. And I absolutely remember because at one point in my life, I was living with a couple of the wizard editors. And I remember sitting with editor Brian Cunningham. We had read the stuff like 12 times each. I was sitting on the floor in the living room. We had all the books out. This was on the weekend or something. This is how crazy into it we were. And we're just saying, well, it could be this person. No, I think it's that. And it was so much fun just really trying to solve this mystery and putting that together. And I honestly don't remember a thing of how close we were or not. I think we were half correct, if I recall. But regardless, it was a really cool article. And just the research behind it was so much fun. The final thing I think I'm most proud of out of all of it, I absolutely love, is I made contact with a cartoonist called Brian Ahern, A-H-E-R-N. Yes. But I met him in an artist alley at a convention. And I loved going to artist alley because it was always the really good artists that just can't afford a big table or can't be at, you know, DC's booth or something. So you find some hidden gems there. And he was there. And he was just a super funny, like, very outgoing kind of guy. And he had such a fun, cartoony style. So I talked to him, and then he ended up doing a lot of work for us, one of which was we had a lot of the inserts, which I think was a poster on one side and a calendar on the other side. Yeah, those are very memorable. Those were so much fun to work on. I worked with him on the calendars every month where – uh, I would work with myself and then the research department. I remember Dan Riley helped a lot coming up with, okay, it's June. What happened in June? Let's look through the years. You know, what issues came out? What movies? Whatever. And then we would send it all to Brian and he would come up with the most amazing little cartoons and, and draw it all. That was fun. But the best part was in our April Fool's issues, which were easily my favorite to do. I worked with Brian Ahern on a fake ad. And it really was the, if you remember back in the old comics, probably from the 80s, they had those like black and white ads that had like, it almost looked like a classified section with 50 different things. You could buy this little thing for 18 cents, x-ray specs for $19. It was like a jam-packed page. With yeah. different. So we did a parody of that. And I remember coming up with probably about 50 different items, writing the text for it and then sending it to him. And he went crazy. 
And I still remember my favorite one was, I remember writing the text with something like, get your own, you know, bottle of Sudia Candor, drop in a spider, play God, you know, crazy. <laughs> it was just fun. And it was so much, I don't know, it was a hoot working with Brian. And somehow that came out absolutely perfect, that whole ad. The whole issue was great. But that one ad, I think I'm probably most proud of because it is pretty detailed and there's a lot of fun stuff in there. Yeah, that's awesome because, you know, we've talked to, you know, Ryan Dunlavy, who also did a lot of stuff. But yeah, it's, it sounds like this is a guy we need to track down because his art was so, so memorable, like you say. Now, you arrived really when Wizard was on a huge, like, upward swing, you know, in terms of sales and just influence in general in the comic book industry. You've already mentioned, you know, several top level talent that you were able to be in touch with. But was there a specific moment for you when you realized just how big a deal Wizard was? You know, going to the conventions back then, this was before Wizard Book Chicago and before San Diego really exploded into a pop culture fest. Just going to the cons, it still was really cool to see so many people online at the Wizard booth. Too. We had the Wheel of Doom where you would just spin the wheel. You have to answer a trivia question. If you get it right, you spin the wheel and you win a prize, which could be an issue of Wizard or one half or something. There was always a line. You never had a dull moment. You couldn't catch your breath. So I was like, wow, people really like either they like free stuff, which they do, but they also really like Wizard because they kept talking about it. That was one. But I think what really scared me, I think, into, wow, this is pretty big. And you Wizard fans are really pretty rabid is... I had mentioned uh, I had done, like, sold comics at, at conventions throughout my childhood. After I started at Wizard, I still remember going back at one point. I don't remember the year, but I went to a, a convention locally in Westchester, New York, home of the X-Men. And it was at the Westchester Convention Center. I was selling comics, and I had a, a college friend with me at the time. And I'm selling them, and some guy comes up. I was a kid. And looks at me and goes, hey, you're Andrew Carter from Wizard, right? And I'm like, yeah. And then he started asking me questions about my dog. And that really freaked me out. Like, how do you know so much about me and my dog? Just showing how rabid these fans are and what they're reading and following. And I'm like, I guess this is a really big magazine. So that would probably be the one moment that really stuck out. Yeah, I mean, that—that that is something that as the readers, I mean, you guys definitely became characters and with the profiles, especially, right? You guys would answer questions. So as far as we knew, that was, you know, the, the truth about you. <laughs> we didn't hide anything. Now, ultimately, then, what would you say was the biggest perk over those years as you're, you know, getting deep into the wizard groove? What did you enjoy the most about working there, whether it was stuff or people? I will say it's. Certainly loved getting free comics, toys, T-shirts, you name it. We got up the wazoo. But I will say for me, it was absolutely, you know, talking to the industry. This was a time way before social media where you wouldn't hear or see anybody. Couldn't easily be accessible to anyone. But I could pick up the phone and I had a relationship with, you know, someone like a Mark Wade. I could call up on a dime and just ask him a question. He would answer and talk to me and we'd chat and then hang up. To me, that was amazing. Just being able to talk to so many people, meet so many people. And, you know, humanize them a little bit, too, but also just get to talk to all of my idols and get paid to do it. It's pretty crazy. And so who were then some of your favorite comics pros to interact with? Because you said, you know, most of them are great that you're getting to, to have those moments with. So were there any particular heroes or just people that were coming up that you met and you were just like, wow, they're great. And then they've gone on to, to great acclaim. It's a combo of all of that, you know, because of basic training, I got to talk to a lot of, you know, pretty good artists all the time. But like a Jim Ballant, who draws the best Catwoman on the planet. Yeah. Mike Ringo, who 
you know what? He was the nicest guy in the industry. I would say he's more, he's nicer than George Perez. He was a fantastic talent and he was an amazing go-to guy. I'm like, Oh my God, my artist fell through. I need something in two days. And he would step in and, and do a fantastic job. Like I said, Mark Wade, it was fun because I used to argue over who's a bigger Captain America fan. And this is right when he started writing it. So he kind of had an edge, but that was fun. Terry Moore was actually became a good friend of mine from Strangers in Paradise and Tom Palmer Jr who was a writer and he was over on Toy Fair for a while, had Palmer's Picks, where he would basically find all these great little gems of comics. So he had written about it, and then I read it and loved it, and would call Terry all the time and talk about things and you know get quotes. I will say probably the two biggest people I met that I have the best memories of, though, um, and this was in person because of Wizard, not just on the phone, was Paul Dini. I remember talking to him, uh, I think Mad Love had just come out, and he was still working on the Batman animated series, which I'm a huge fan of. So I was talking to him, and then he actually invited me to breakfast at San Diego Comic-Con. So the two of us were at breakfast just talking about work, and then uh, Batman animated series, and I remember he actually wrote some episodes of the old Dungeons & Dragons cartoon. So it was a total geek fest, and he didn't mind. So that was fun, but my biggest shining star... And this was a fun story, um, was meeting Mark Hamill. And, (laughs) And Mark Hamill, the reason I met him was he wrote a comic called The Black Pearl. for. I remember this, yeah. And I know I had to have read it because I wrote about it. I don't remember a thing about it. But it was coming out, and Dark Horse was one of my main contacts. We all had different companies. And we went to San Diego, Comic-Con, and... I think his name was Lou Bank, was our main contact over at Dark Horse. A really nice guy. And he said, hey, I've got something for you because you guys are doing a great job covering it. Mark Hamill is going to be here promoting his Black Pearl. And I'm taking a number of guys out with him to dinner. Do you want to join us? And I'm like, what kind of stupid question is that? Of course we want to join. (laughs) (laughs) So it was myself and editor Brian Cunningham at the time who – I ginormous Star Wars fan too. And we went to this dinner. We were so excited. We're in San Diego Comic-Con. Oh my God, there's Mark Hamill. You know, everyone got to meet him as we're walking to dinner, said hi, shook his hand. And then there were, you know, a few other people from some, I don't remember where they were from, other magazines or something, not Entertainment Weekly, but probably similar to that kind of thing. Maybe about 10 of us were there. So Brian and I were kind of pushed back and we were talking to some of the other editors. We get to a table, we sit down at dinner, Brian and I are at one end. Mark is at the complete other end when they were having dinner. And I'm like, all right, at least we get to see him. That's kind of cool. We didn't hear his stories. It'd be nice to interact, but but okay. Dinner finishes and, you know, we're waiting for dessert. Mark gets up and goes, hey, I want to switch seats because I want to go talk to the wizard guys. And he came down oh. to our and sat next to us and we talked for about a half hour or something, just about everything under the sun. And he was such a great, amazing ham of a guy. And he still is. You see him on Twitter. You see him at cons. That's yeah. him. He is just so open and friendly and appreciative of the fans. So to me, that was the most memorable, I think, moment in pro I got to talk to and, and you guys, yeah, are superstars to him as well, because he's a huge comics fan, right? So now, you know, we were talking about the good times and the directions. Do you recall any particular drama or anything that ever came up during your editorial days as you're managing certain things? You're like, uh-oh, we're going to have to fix this one. There certainly were plenty of those. The only thing I remember, controversial, I'll say, which was only because I was involved in it. And this was another thing I guess I'm most proud of, going back to that question of, of different columns. We started a column called Report Card later on. And what it was, was reviews. Wizard never did real, honest reviews. 
you know, we would review a comic in, in general, but it wasn't like a normal five-star rating kind of review. But I wanted to do that. So a bunch of us, it was me, Brian, and I think we had a rotating staff. I think Scott Beatty at the time and a few others, maybe Steve Blackwell. We would pick a few comics and we would read maybe 10 issues of each one as a run. And then we would get together and talk about them and come up with a grade from A to F, whatever. And it was fun, and it was great, and we had no problems until we did a review on a comic called DV8, which was by Jim Lee at the time. And as much as I love Jim, super-duper awesome guy, amazing artist, this one issue or run we read, we're like, this is really pretty bad. Like, we just didn't like it. We wanted to. And we're like, so we were honest and open, and I don't, we probably gave him a C was probably the grade for those. And, you know, we pointed out the positives and what we think would help to, to fix it, and wrote it. And then and so the issue was put together. And for magazines at the time, we would get prints or proofs from the printing house. We'd send us stuff. We'd have to look at it and make sure there's there's nothing majorly wrong. And then if we're all good, we, we send it in or make corrections and then it gets printed. So I remember it was sitting on the light table where we look at them. And I think Garib was probably the one who saw it and saw the DV8 one and he squashed it. He said, you cannot do this. You know, Jim Lee is a, a friend of the company. And if we ever want to get anything from him again, you can't. This came down, I guess, the editorial integrity question. You know, where, where do you go or not go? And that, I remember, was probably the biggest drama I was involved with. And we had a lot of conversations with Garrett, but, I mean, he's the boss. So if he wants to pull it, he pulled it. And he did. So there you go. Behind-the-scenes secret review of DV8 for you. Yeah, that's intense. And as a Gen 13 fan, that was a spinoff from Gen 13. And I only got past, like, the second issue. So <laughs> you guys weren't wrong. Gen 13, that was a good comic. It was fun. But DV8 didn't work. Exactly, yeah. It just wasn't the same vibe. So I think that's more, you know, that's the biggest thing I remember, but that's kind of along the lines of any kind of drama. I don't remember too much else in terms of uh, anything, really. So getting back to your profiles and people reading about you in the wizard bullpen section, you know, you are somebody who appeared very often in that section when we were getting news about what was going on in the wizard offices, you know, whether it was a facial hair growing contest, beating the inquest staff at miniature golf or leading a Jewish Seder for the Gentile staff. So are there any favorite memories of office hijinks or just general tomfoolery that you'd care to share? Oh, gosh. Well, I know I've, I haven't listened to every single one of these other wizard podcasts, but I've listened to plenty and they've all talked about the pranks and everything. So I don't need to get into those. Uh, <laughs> what I do remember, it definitely was a fun, fun area. And we clearly spent time doing things outside of work. I mean, who else has a Seder? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were curious to like, what's it like? So we did it. It was fun. But I do remember some of the things that were really fun that probably people haven't talked about. One was we had a wizard scavenger hunt ourselves, not for the fans, but for the staff. And that was Pat McCallum and Matt Senreich kind of organized it. And first I had to get buy-in from all the managers to pick one day that we could basically let everyone go free. And they divvied up the entire company. It was like 40 of us into, you know, teams of four, just randomly kind of. So you're, you're with different people from the finance team and uh, I want to say operations, design, wherever. So it was like four of us on a team and we're given a box and then we're told you have three hours, go. And all the instructions are in the box and we had to leave and you had to find anything from, you know, a one of those red forks from Nathan's for the French fries to a photo of you in fireman's outfit. Like just crazy, crazy <laughs> stuff. It was like a Polaroid camera. And it was an 
absolute blast running around all day doing crazy stuff. Pat and Matt probably loved it because the office was empty. They could get work done. So that was probably their reason. But I remember something like that and it just really built such a fun communal feel. We came back on that one. They were always trying to do a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, what I always found interesting is, you know, as we've talked to the different staffers, like Pat was actually giving like cash prizes and things when you won, right? Oh, yeah. He would give everything away. He wouldn't care. He would just take his wallet out and throw it or, or <laughs> buy whatever he needed to to get things going. He just really, really wanted everyone to get along and mix and he did a fabulous job of that, I'd have to say. Well, and speaking of which, so, you know, you're talking about the office activities and then there was kind of like the after hours because as we understand it, and it was actually reported in the magazine, <laughs> again, getting into your personal life, but it was mentioned that you, Pat McCallum, Brian Cunningham, Mike Fasolo, and, and others got a house together that, that you actually lived in. What can you tell us about the wizard house? I will tell you, I don't remember us reporting on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just read it, and I was like, what? Mike was my first roommate after college. I remember he started working after me, and both of us were trying to look to get out, and I had to convince him. And the two of us got an apartment together and lived in it for a year, but when our lease was almost up, I'm like, this is an apartment. It's a dive. I, I want to get into somewhere really cool and closer to work. And we saw you could, you know, they were renting houses that were kind of nearby, and it was this huge house with five bedrooms, and uh, it was like a mother-daughter kind of house. So there were two kitchens, two huge living rooms, you know, a fireplace, a few acres of land. It was crazy. And the price was not nuts. I mean, if you got five people in it, it was about the same as what we were paying. So we asked around. Pat was like, absolutely, I'll go in. Brian, we had to convince. That took a little while, but he agreed to come in. And I think Brian's friend, Walter, came in as the, the fifth one for us. That was... Also one of the most surreal few years of my life, I will say. All the shenanigans you read about in Wizard just continued, throw it into a house and it's the same thing. I will say, Pat lived and breathed Wizard because we'd be having breakfast and he'd be talking about ideas about comics and wouldn't this be a cool article? And we would just brainstorm nonstop. But it was fun. We really were friends and we hung out. We played Mario Kart every night. We watched Dawson's Creek every week together. <laughs> um, the best thing of all of that that I recall, though, is we did an annual Halloween party at our house yes there are you've probably seen them but the invitations alone were a riot they yes. were designed at the office our design team would help and they used like little amigo figures or something with word balloons and just craziness that was fun and especially the first few years of it all of us together in the house would come up with the theme you know we did the teen titans one year we were all together so we all dressed up as different characters in that theme you were jericho that year right I was jericho which was <laughs> my wife girlfriend at the time went as tara and i don't know why it's her smile i think she was like spot on perfect while i looked ridiculous as jericho she was like oh my god that's totally tara which was really really fun nobody had a clue who i was because nobody knows jericho <laughs> at all those kinds of parties were just an absolute blast and it was fun it was really really fun living with those guys i have to say yeah. And so like, you know, we're, we're talking about your, your evolution with the company, you, you know, just it's being there and ready to do what needed to be done. And so you became a contributing editor with issue 61, an assistant editor by issue 66, and then by issue 80, you're managing editor. So were these like big milestones in your career with noticeable changes or were, do you feel like you were just getting recognized for all the work you were kind of already doing and now there's a title to go with it? I would say it's both. Some of it was just I was doing more and more 
and they said, hey, he's doing a great job. Let's just call him a contributing editor, that kind of thing. Managing editor was different. That was where they saw a need for it. I think somebody left who was a managing editor. And I said, yeah, I'm kind of doing most of that anyway. So why don't I go full force for it? But yeah, I, I was part of that, that my transition from assistant copy editor. I might have been, but maybe it's a copy editor in the masthead. But I was assistant at the first when I started, worked all the way up to managing, which was a lot of fun. I had to basically, I called it traffic cop. I had to keep tabs on every single article that was going in the magazine. And, and I had this giant, giant whiteboard that was the size of a wall with like uh, a grid on it showing like what stage it's in. You know, it's being written, it's in design, it's here. And I had to go fill it out all the time to see exactly where everything was. Wow. How would you describe the difference between what you're doing than keeping an eye on everything and then Pat as editor-in-chief? Like what, what's the main difference there? Yeah, well, as managing editor, I purely was just content in terms of where is this piece of content? Not that I would edit it or worry about what it says. Just is the art done? Has it been designed? Yes. Has it been copy edited? Great. That's what I was doing. Pat, to his credit, I believe, read every single word in every single magazine. Not just Wizard. Wow. Inquest. You name it. Proofs went by his desk for everything. So he would look at everything and put his mark on it all. Okay. Now, speaking of which, you know, you contributed really to every other Wizard spinoff magazine, right? So like you say, they're Toy Fair and Inquest and Bean Power. I didn't see listed under your credits. I did write for Bean Power. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's the true mark of a wizard veteran. Were you involved in Bean Power? I'll even tell you what I did. Okay, let's hear it. If you have a copy in front of you, if you look at the bottom of any issue of Bean Power, there are little did you know facts about animals and it tied to whatever animal beanie baby we were talking about and i remember going to the library and researching it had to be about 200 facts of different animals and i still remember the platypus being the best because it has a poisoned barb uh, little hook on its back paw what's hilarious is i just read that in a trivia book to my oh, son funny. last night about <laughs> the platypus <laughs> That's what I, did. I did read that stuff and i had to write all those things down and... now also were there any particular wizard sister publications that stood out to you the most maybe ones that didn't survive that maybe you wished had lasted longer that you had a particular interest in i wrote a lot for inquest when inquest started i was there beforehand so you know they would it was nice because i was working there but they would also tap us to be a freelancers you know we get paid like freelancers we could certainly farm the article out to someone else but who knows the stuff better than us in terms of what we want and edit so they often would do that and a number of us would be writing for other magazines but sometimes we do it on wizard time and wouldn't get paid or we do it after but inquest i remember doing a lot and early on for that and i played the game it was a lot of fun magic the gathering uh, which is what inquest was at the beginning mostly i remember early on i got to interview a lot of the artists behind the cards which is kind of interesting so that was fun doing all of that but i think one of my favorites is a magazine that was very shortly it was tunes which is about cartoons right because i'm a huge 80s fan here of every cartoon you can imagine and at the time i again this is all about me just talking to people i got to interview a guy named seth mcfarlane for this new show he had called family guy and i remember calling him up i'm like your show's hilarious it's really fun i got to interview him super nice guy and the best part is his voice is exactly brian the dog he doesn't that's not acting that's his voice (laughs) tunes was a lot of fun just writing about cartoon things and 
I think I did a couple of episode guides for them too on that. The other ones, I think Sci-Fi Invasion was another one I liked, which sadly was pretty short-lived, but if you can imagine, it's just sci-fi related things. Yeah, we, we have those too over here. But one that we just obtained that you were involved in, I just have to understand, could you explain the concept behind the Toy Wishes catalog and where exactly was it sold? How did people get a hold of that? It's not as exciting as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Toy Wishes was a joint venture between Wizard. Basically, Garrett made a connection with a guy named Jim Silver, who worked at a company called Adventure Publishing. And what they put out was something called The Toy Book and a number of other magazines, but they were all on the retail side. So it was all about toys and like, you know, Toy Fair, the show that you would go to from the retail perspective. And we were on the consumer perspective. So Garib and Jim talked and said, hey, we should put something together that kind of hits both ends and we can give it away or sell it or whatever. And I don't think it was even sold anywhere. They made a deal with Toys R Us at the time. And I think they just gave it away at the holidays. It was just basically oh, okay. it was a glorified toy catalog. Yeah. <laughs> Two to three hundred pages, but imagine Wizard putting together a toy guide is what it was with some fun articles. Definitely was not as uh, snarky as Wizard. We had to tone it down because this one was going to young kids and mothers mainly. That was the target audience. And it really was just a list of here's all the hot toys you're going to want this Christmas broken down by category. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, we were talking about RetroCon earlier and, you know, the, the hot item among the retro community are like the Sears wish books, yes. right? Those old catalogs. And the toy section specifically so to have that magazine it's like it's all toys Ooh, you know it really wasn't fun to work on i will say <laughs> mainly because wizard didn't have much to do with it it was mostly jim sober's team where they would compile the lists and kind of send it over to us they would help gather all the information and i had to work with our research department you know in that vein i was talking to pr people and various research people over at all the major toy companies so that was interesting you know hasbro lego and that's how I was going to say, were you not already in touch with them because of Toy Fair? Somewhat. For some of them, yes. But it was different departments, mostly. Because for Toy Fair magazine, you're talking about, you know, He-Man and that kind of line. And that might cross over. But, you know, we're not covering My Little Pony in Wizard Magazine or Toy Fair magazine. And yeah. that's the kind of thing that's in there, or Duplo Lego sets, things like that. So there wasn't very much, you know, there were some action figures, and actually the Toy Fair staff, I think Zach Oat was the one at the time, the editor, uh, was helping to contribute, where he, we would just say, hey, we need something on action figures for, you know, boys. Can you put something together? And he'd say, yeah, these are the five you probably want to do. But mainly it was just, again, just compiling all this information, and it's not a lot of text. It was maybe two sentences per item, but we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of toys. So it takes a, it's a lot of work to go through and get the page designed make sure everything is spelled correctly the copyrights are there uh, it was just a lot of work on that end not so much on the creative end i would say all because garib made a connection more work for you <laughs> But speaking of the big cheese, the time has come, Andrew. We must ask, Garib Seamus, cool or fool? Do I have to answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, my mother always says, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it. But I will say, if I can, I would say both, if that's an acceptable answer. Because he, like I said, he did give me my first job there. He was really nice to me back then, you know, um, before I even started. He came up with the concept. You know, put up the dollars behind it, started a great magazine, got himself a great staff, in, you know, in place. And even and he was constantly trying something new. I'll give him that. You know, buying the conventions was certainly interesting. Uh, and that was 
a very fun, crazy time as well. Um, he tried other magazines. Some worked, some didn't. So that was great. Uh, on the flip side, I don't know how much he knew about <laughs> like these things. Like, I honestly don't know how much of a huge comic book fan he really is. I know he loved collecting the art. He loved, absolutely loved dropping names and meeting everybody. Like I've been doing this whole time. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that's what he did. He loved talking to all the big wigs and, you know, making things work. Um, but he'd walk around the office and I think I've heard other people say this. He knew me because I was there pretty early on, but he had no clue who probably half the people were in the building. And made no bones to even try to learn who they are or what they do. He'd come down and just suggest things that were completely out of whack. So just in that vein, it was just weird. Whenever he'd walk around, it was odd, I'd say. Fair enough. I mean, a little bit of praise, a little bit of, huh? So now let's move on here. What was the reason for your departure from Wizard the first time around after about six years of being very heavily involved in all sides and all magazines? Um, I didn't want to leave, I'll say that. I was there for about six years, like you said. Um, I was living with these guys. It was just awesome. Everything was awesome, except for, well, I will say, except for the salary <laughs> is one. That's the one non-perk about was didn't pay that well. It paid okay, I would say, but not that well. But all the other perks were great. Um, but the main reason I left was right probably about six months before I left. It was before wizardworld.com had started, the, the wizard website that the price got online and all the other stuff on it. That was being built, and I was really, really into the web at the time, like really wanted to do a lot, and I remember talking to them about it and had a lot of great ideas that I thought would be really cool and, and exciting, and I wanted to get into it. And we were going to start an office for this new thing. It was going to be in Manhattan, but a lot of it would also be up in, in the Congress area. And I remember they they saw like I had a big interest. They liked what I was saying, and Fred Pierce, I think was the VP at the time, was a big driver behind that. And I remember him talking to me a lot, saying, you know, we want you to do this and head up this section and you're going to be really great. And I remember talking to him a lot and saying, I really want to get this going, but I don't want to work in Manhattan. Sorry, it, it's it's not convenient for me and that's not what I want. He promised me it wouldn't be in Manhattan. Don't worry. And we just kept talking and talking and I'm like, okay, when's it coming? When am I going to start? And they just kept dragging their feet. And it, it literally took like six months more and they still didn't make any progress. So at that point, I started looking around and ended up getting a job offer at, this was back in the dot-com boom before it exploded, I guess, it imploded, I should say. And I ended up getting a job as a product manager for, uh, it was a competitor of Yahoo, which at the time was very big, not now, but at the time was huge. Google had just kind of been really small. eBay hadn't even started yet, I don't think. So I just jumped at that chance because I wanted to get into the web. Was this Alta Vista? Who are you with? No. <laughs> iwon.com, I-W-O-N. Okay. It was basically Yahoo, except everything you did, you earned points, and you could use those points to enter like a, a monthly sweepstakes. And they wow. gave you like a million dollars a month. So it was a pretty neat gimmick, I thought. That is wild. Wow. So, I mean, I couldn't. I just really wanted to get into the web, and I wanted to do it with Wizard, but it just took too long. So that's really why I left. Okay, and then so during this period, while you are experienced the rise and fall of the dot com <laughs> bubble, yeah. um, then you eventually returned to head up magazines like Toy Fair and Anime Insider and things like that. So, what was the experience like during your second tour of duty? How did you make that transition back? Uh, well, obviously, I stayed in touch with them because I was friends with these guys. Um, I had moved out; I wasn't living there anymore, mainly because I got married and I wasn't going to live there with my wife. So we moved out. <laughs> And 
stay in touch. And at some point, I guess it was a year and a half later or something like that, Doug Goldstein and Matt Sarich and a bunch of them started Robot Chicken and moved out to California. So Doug was actually the editor at the time, heading up Anime Insider, Toy Fair Magazine, and the Toy Wishes catalog we just talked about. So there was a huge vacancy there. And I had kept in touch with Pat and then Joe Yanarella, uh, one of the managing editors there at the time. And they knew me. And I was, I guess at the time you could say, while I was a huge fanboy, I was probably the more much more on the normal side of a fanboy, if that makes sense, where I had like a regular job also and could understand it and do it. And I guess they loved my organization. They knew I could work with Garib really well, which you need to in those positions. So they were asking me if I'd be interested in replacing Doug's role. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I left for a number of reasons and, you know, I'm making much more now. And shockingly, the salary wasn't an issue for them. So, you know, basically they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So, I came back and spent another two years there in a very, very different role. Yeah, so was it as enjoyable? Was it as carefree in this mid-2000s era? Absolutely not. (laughs) It was was definitely different. It's funny how two years makes a difference. It was bigger, so there were a lot more people there, a lot of younger people. So I guess I was on a different level now, so I wasn't with the, the frat crew anymore. And I don't want to say it was more corporate because that's not the answer. That's not the right answer. But it was much more. A lot of the things we did was much more having to do with with Hollywood and dealing with companies. And to me, it seemed like we weren't as free creatively as we were in the past. We were a little more handcuffed and we had to be a little stricter with things. And just in general, um, just the vibe was a little bit different. It might be because I wasn't on Wizard itself. I was more on anime and Toy Fair. But, yeah, it was definitely a little bit more subdued, I would say. At that point, maybe we all, we all got older, so maybe that had something to do with it too. So after that period, then what was the decision to leave for the final time from Wizard? So I did another two years, like I said, and then at that point, part of it was, like I said, Toy Wishes was a beast to work on because not only was it just a lot to work on in terms of volume, it was all done in like a two week period. So it was mammoth and just nonstop cramming and just your head is spinning. And there were lots of problems uh, just coordinating things like that. I had some issues without getting into it with upper management, I would say. I wasn't too happy with the way they were running things. So that was part of it. So I was getting a little disillusioned. I don't know. I I was losing my luster and just kind of doing the job, phoning it in to a degree, you know, doing the job, but not really caring and putting that extra effort in. And on the side, all along, I had been doing my own stuff with a a friend of mine, starting our own web business. We did some, uh, like, coupon websites, uh, as well as other freelance work I was doing. And I had built up enough freelance work that I actually could quit and still be fine. So I pretty much just pulled the plug and said, I'm going full-time freelance. So I could write and work on my own website. And that's really kind of what I did for a while. Okay. Now, uh, one thing that was mentioned recently during the 30th anniversary you know, discussion that we had with a few of the folks was that some people, upon their departure, especially if they had a history, had been there a while, they would get you know, some special piece of artwork or something of that nature, you know, from a favorite artist, you know, that Pat or somebody would coordinate. Did you end up walking away with something like that? I did, actually. I'm trying to remember if it was the second time or the first time. I think it was the second time that I left. He gave me a, I don't think it was ever even, no, it was probably used. It was a cover of Wizard with Captain America on it, because he's my number one, drawn by, I think it was drawn by George Perez and inked by Jimmy Palmiotti. And it's Cap holding like the red skull who just punched his face in. Yeah. Holding him up. So he gave me that as the original artist. That was pretty cool. And I definitely still have that. 
That's cool. So let me let me get into this. And what question am I not asking about your time at Wizard after all this discussion that I should be asking? You did not ask me about the Mego House of Horrors. Let's hear it. <laughs> it's a very little known fact, and I think we did mention it in some magazine somewhere. But when did this start? This started back when I was a copy editor at Wizard. And if you've seen some of the photos in the magazine, we would just geek out at our desk with toys everywhere. I still had my old Mego superheroes from when I was a kid. They were beat up, and I had Shazam or Captain Marvel, whatever they were calling him at the time. And he was missing a fist. You know, costumes were missing everything. My Captain America had a shield that was literally taped on. So I had a whole bunch of them. And I brought them in one day. And then over time, somehow... They started getting into very offensive positions, I would say. <laughs> and I don't remember if I started or someone else, but then every day in the morning when I came in, I would set them up in horrific poses, I will say. Probably the exact opposite of what an HR manual would look like of how you should set things up. It was just nasty and just uh, just funny for guys. <laughs> so at some point, we, you know, I remember Pat coming in and it was like uh, I had – was it uh, Captain Kirk had his little blue phaser and he's pointing it at like Robin's head to do horrible things. And I think Pat might have been the one to dub this like, I can't believe this Mego House of Horrors you have here. And from there, I kept changing things up every single day. And it was fun. It was just crazy and, and kooky. But it led to this was way before Toy Fair magazine. When Pat was working on the first issue of Toy Fair, the special, he wanted to do something and he wanted to do Spider-Man Macarena. I think that was Mego Spidey's first appearance. Mm -hmm. And he tried using a Spider-Man action figure at the time, but it just wasn't working. The articulation wasn't great or something. And he's like, oh, my God. And he ran into my office. He's like, can I borrow this? And it was my Mego Spidey. I'm like, yeah, sure. So he grabbed him and went. And like from there, it took off, I guess, the, the face. And, and he didn't use my Migos at all after that. But I'm saying that that got things going from there. So to me, Twisted Toy Fair Theater started as a house of horrors, really. And then grew from there. But little known fact, that Spider-Man, that first appearance, my Mego Spider-Man is long gone. And that's only his head. The body is a human torch body. Oh, I know that. That's a little known fact. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. The secret origin of Twisted Toy Fair Theater. The one, the, speaking of having things on your desk, you know, in your profile as one of the damned and, and when you were managing editor at issue 83, you have one of the handmade Madman by Mike Allred uh, ragdolls that was actually sewn by his mom. Ray Bell was her name. Yes. Did you hang on to that? I did not. <laughs> I Well, I did. I have no idea when I lost it or got rid of it. It must have gotten ripped up at some point. I love that thing. That thing was awesome. Yeah, it's so cute. So fun. I remember the actual listing for you could order one, you know, yeah. and they were all handmade and everything. And you're like, I can't believe it. I wish I would have back then. He but... was a crazy fun guy, Mike Allred, as you can tell from his art and storytelling. Yeah, he, he's super nice and to the point where uh, one of my co-hosts just filmed a movie this summer and he asked for permission, can my characters wear a Madman t-shirt throughout right. the film? And he gave permission, you know, so awesome. that was so awesome. But then have you hung on to any other swag or mementos from Wizard over the years? Is there anything else that is a special prize? Uh, you know, the one thing I have, I'm staring at it right now. If you remember when Minimates came out, 
Mm -hmm. uh, the little toys. The first time they came out, they were pretty big. They weren't super tiny. They were bigger, and there was a show on TV, a claymation show called Celebrity Deathmatch. Yeah. Uh, which I guess was like similar to like a robot chicken later on. It was just mm -hmm. crazy mayhem. There was a promo for that show of a Celebrity Deathmatch Mr. T mini-me. And as much as I love Twisted Sister, I love Mr. T. And that was the other part of my thing. So I somehow got my hands on that and never let go, and I still have it. So that is probably the only thing I can recall that I still have from those days. Wow, that's fantastic. So then as you look back now, you know, we've covered the highs and the lows, but how would you describe the legacy of Wizard Magazine just in the comic book industry or what it personally meant to you now that we are in the 30th anniversary year? Well, for one, I'm completely shocked and floored. The fans all along I was, and even now, like you guys <laughs> that you care enough about this magazine that hasn't been around for years you're doing podcasts about it and talking to people i mean <laughs> honestly that means a lot like you know what we were doing was fun and we were having a blast it was work but what we did was was so much fun even writing captions for the news stories it was so much fun but it would take a while all of that was great so legacy wise i guess it certainly helped the industry uh, i think it helped push the industry and the industry helped push wizard it was a perfect timing with image and then valiant like all that together really helped each other for me i certainly learned a tremendous amount i made incredible friends had some of the best years of my life the lessons i learned in terms of writing and writing for consumers that i have taken with me for every single job going forward i've done a lot of marketing work actually oddly enough i started in marketing had no marketing background <laughs> that's what i do now i've taken that with me throughout and i i know how to do it and the one thing i do try to do at every company i'm I'm at is recreate what worked with wizard, which is exactly why we're talking because wizard pulled that curtain aside and said, here's the people that work here and here's the crazy things they do. And it added humanity to the magazine. So I try to do that with every company I can to say, Hey, don't just be a you know blank website or boring magazine or book or whatever. Show that there are real people there and talk about it because that's how people. Are. So that's probably the biggest lesson in, like a legacy I've taken from Wizard. One thing I just wanted to bring up is in one of your profiles, you know, your your life's dream was to at some point write the Captain America comic book, taking it back to the beginning. And did you ever make a pitch to Marvel? Was there ever a door opened to you to, where you had that opportunity? Adam, it's still a dream of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I did write a couple of pitches about actually a bunch of us, you know, the Wizard guys hanging out. We wrote comic pitches back in the day and we sent them in, didn't get anywhere. I did write a Captain America backup story, like a short little story. Never got picked up or anything like that. But no, nothing beyond that. I'm thinking at some point in the future, maybe. I was going to say, there's still time. So now, Andrew, we want to thank you so much for joining us. I mean, the stories that were shared, the enthusiasm is wonderful. But where can people find your work now or connect with you online? I am on social media all over the place, but the best place is I actually have a daddy blog. And again, this is where I took a lot of wizard style and put it in there because it's just me having fun uh, called Mommy's Busy Go Ask Daddy. And <laughs> And I started that when my kids were, I want to say about four and six, maybe, or six and eight around then, and started just writing some fun, stupid things. I've been doing that for a long time now, and I've just slowed down because my regular job, I'm in marketing, like I said, in healthcare, totally different from Wizard, on more on the boring spectrum. So this is more fun. It lets me get my, my uh, creativity out. It's mommiesbusy.com, M-O-M-M-Y-S. B-U-S-Y.com. And from there, you can find all my social handles as well. The latest post I did actually was on the Lego Daily Bugle set. Oh, cool. Which, so I'm turning it really into just a fun blog now that my kids are older, just about things I'm doing. And it's probably going to turn into a Lego of the month post is my guess. 
That sounds cool. Yeah, so that's something to tune in for there. A little bit of fun. And if you're looking forward to more fun, why don't you plan to tune in to the next installment of The Wizard Files? Yes, we have another Andrew on the docket, except this guy is Andy. Andy Serwin, another manager with a very long journey with Wizard. In fact, he was there in the final days. So he is going to take us on an epic expedition through the Wizard office offices and all the machinations in between. But we want to thank again Andrew Carden for his candor, for these great stories that he shared. What a fun time he had and glad we all got to enjoy some of those stories. Of course, if you want to stay connected to the world of wizards, get ready for the next Wizard Files episode. Be sure to follow us on social media at Wizards Comics on Twitter at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. You can find our YouTube channel as well. We have more exciting content for you there. But most of all, we just want to hear from you. So did you like this interview? Did you have any questions when we interview other wizard staffers? What is it you want to know? And if you yourself are a wizard staffer, a friend of Andrew Carden, who decided to check in, why haven't we talked to you yet? Let us hear your perspective. Let us know what it was like for you working at Wizard Magazine. Yes, your stories matter. We want to hear them. So, until next time, we're closing the files. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.